What I want to do is tell you a story from the Word of God. Word of God is a story. I thank God that he didn't give us a sort of random collection of theological truths, but rather gave us a wonderful story. And that last song we sang summed that up, really, that the mystery of God's story through time. But, as well as giving us a wonderful story, God actually gave us a book full of stories. There are around 550 different stories in the Bible. And I love to tell them. I don't know whether you love to hear them, but I love to tell the stories. And often, when you tell the stories, you're not quite sure where to break in, because one story goes on to another. So I'm going to work through to a particular detailed story, but in order to do that, I want to break in a little bit earlier in the history of the people of God. Okay, so here's a story from the Word of God. It was around a thousand years before Jesus came and the people of God, Israel, were ruled by a prophet. And this prophet, his name was Samuel, had led the people of God for quite a number of years. Then the elders of Israel came to Samuel and said, somewhat unkindly really, Samuel, you're old. I don't know how you'd feel about that. If you were a great prophet leading God's people, and suddenly the people come to you and say, Samuel, you're old. And we want a king like all the other nations around. Okay, now, to Samuel as a prophet, that was double rejection. They were saying, you're old. But they're also saying, we want a king. Don't want to be led by a prophet anymore. We want a king like all the other kings around. Now, Samuel was quite hurt by this. And... What do you do when you're hurt? Well, Samuel did a very wise thing and he went to talk to God about it. The best thing to do when you've got hurt is go to talk to God about it. So Samuel went to God and he said, God, they say they want a king now like all the other nations around. And God said, Samuel, don't worry, they haven't rejected you They've rejected me. Now, I want you to tell them what it will be like if they have a king like all the other nations around. This is what it will be like. Firstly, 
this king will take all your young men. Okay, come on, quick. He will take all your young men and conscript them into his army. Okay? That's okay. (laughs) He will take all your young women (laughs) and make them maidservants in his palace. That's what he'll do. He'll take people. He will take all your lands and give, it, give your lands to his favourites in court. You know, one of the things on our news over this weekend is that tragic nation Zimbabwe. And what happened there was that the ruler took all the land and gave it not to the poor, although that's what he said he would do, but he gave it to his favourites and people that had influence with him. That's what a king will do. If you choose a king like all the other nations around, that is what it will be like. Also, he will take a tenth of everything you have. Taxation was built in from that point. Now, there's a great big difference between having a tenth taken and willingly giving something like that to the Lord's work. Very big difference. But this is what a king will be like if you have a king like all the other nations around. But, God said, if they want a king, I will give them a king. And I will give them a king like the other nations around them. Now, I keep repeating those words, like the other nations around, because that's the sort of king that they were asking for. They weren't asking for God's ideal of a king. So, God gave them King Saul. Now, Saul started off quite well. He had what we call today, for politicians, a honeymoon period. At first, it went quite well. But then, he started doing all the things that the prophet said he would do. He became very self-centred. He didn't win many battles. But when he did, he erected a big statue of himself. That's what the kings do, like all the other nations around And he also started rebelling against God and instead of bringing in the will of God, he brought in his own desires. So, God said to his old prophet, who despite being old was still alive for the rest of this story, which was quite a few years later, and he said to this old prophet, Samuel, because Samuel had got quite fond of Saul by this time, and he said, stop mourning after Saul and the way he acts. I've rejected him from being king over Israel. The reason was, God, having shown them what a king would be like, like all the other nations around, was now going to demonstrate to them what he called a man after his own heart. 
So, Samuel, God said to Samuel, I've rejected Saul. Now, what I want you to do is go to Bethlehem. Now, we've all heard of Bethlehem today, haven't we? Right? Did you, did you, did you ever speak to your preachers here? Okay, just, just, just I want to, you know, it's nice to know you're all still alive, okay? And <laughs> he said, go to Bethlehem. Now, we've all heard of Bethlehem, but actually, that was like saying going to some obscure village around. Anyone come from an obscure village around Winchester? Yeah, where'd you come from? Mitchell who? Mitchell Dever. Is that right? Okay. Right. Well, it's like saying to Samuel, Samuel, go to Mitchell Dever. Okay, nothing ever happens there. But, and, and what I want you to do when you go to Mitchell Dever or Bethlehem is I want you to anoint a new king there. Well, Samuel said, I can't do that. You know what the gossip is like. You know all the media report on what prophets do. News will get back to Saul and he'll kill me. So God said, have a plan, Samuel. This is your plan. When you go to Bethlehem, simply say you've come to offer a sacrifice. Because when prophets went to places, they used to have a sacrifice, which meant they would... um, It's difficult for us because we don't have this sort of thing now for very good reasons, but actually they would offer up an animal and this sort of sacrifice, which was called a fellowship offering, they would then all eat the animal together. And so so God said to Samuel, just say you've come to offer a sacrifice. Okay, so Samuel went on that basis. When he got to Bethlehem, now remember, Bethlehem was a tiny village no one had ever heard of and prophets didn't go to Bethlehem. So when he got there, the elders were nervous. Whoa, why's the prophet come here? What's the prophet doing here? And they sort of were trembling. Have you come in peace? Samuel said, yeah, I've come in peace. And he said, is there a man called Jesse here? Jesse was there. And uh, Samuel said to Jesse, at the feast tonight, bring all your sons. How many of your sons? All. Okay, all your sons. Right, said Jesse. And so, everybody got ready and that evening there was an amazing feast. The sacrifice would have been made, the young cow as it was, would have been uh, all cooked, ready for everyone to eat. Now, a lot of places I go to, particularly in the Caucasus in southern Russia, they specialise in amazing barbecues in all sorts of weather. I've had them right in the winter. 
Uh, but this, you know, the whole village was coming and they could smell the meat. And so, God sa- and so Samuel said, before we eat, I'm going to ask Jesse to have all his sons pass in front of me. Because one of them I'm going to anoint as king. Now, is there one very tall guy here? Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. So, as all the sons came before Samuel, the first one was an amazingly good-looking and tall guy. <laughs> and Samuel was looking for another king. And when he saw this first guy, whose name was Eliab, he said, surely the Lord's anointed is in front of me. And he was about to get out his horn of oil and pour it over his head, if he could reach. And God, as he got it out, God said, no, not him. This is only for the first of drama, you understand? It said... I've rejected him because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. Sorry, mate. (laughs) And they came to the second one and the third one and the fourth one. Now, Imagine the two youngest sons. Can I have two young men again? Quick, quick, please. Two young men. Quick, quick. <laughs> One, two. All very shy, your young men here. Okay, that's fine, yes. All right. <laughs> okay. No, they go that side. Okay. <laughs> now, as he came to the fifth, and there were seven in all, And God said, not this one. Imagine how the next two felt. They'd be looking at each other. (laughs) Oh, is it me? Or is it you? What do you reckon? Okay, imagine the drama of this moment. Then he comes to number six. Picks up his horn to a horn of oil. God says, not this one. So imagine how number seven felt. (laughs) Number seven would have really felt something special. And then suddenly, as he came to anoint him, God said, not this one. (laughs) Now, this was strange. God had said to Samuel, anoint one of Jesse's sons. And so he turned to Jesse. Now, Jesse was a very old man by now. Samuel turned to Jesse and uh, he was an old man by now. He said, Jesse, do you have any other sons? Now, imagine this, can't you? So Jesse sort of... You know, you have to read the Bible with 
understanding the drama of what's going on, which often we don't. Have I? Have I oh, yes! <laughs> there is the youngest. Now, when I preach this in the East and in Africa, they understand this. You see, you don't invite the youngest to the feast. The youngest doesn't count. Imagine being so rejected by your family that you don't get invited to the special family party. That was the... But he was just the youngest. You don't worry about the youngest. And Samuel said to Jesse, send for him. We're not going to eat until he comes. Now, he's out in the hills looking after the sheep, probably two hours away. Just imagine the whole village is there, the food is cooked, the meat is ready, the vegetables are prepared, everyone's starving, hungry, having waited all day, they're having a wonderful feast, and the prophet says, we can't have it until this guy comes. And they'll have to stand, sit around there, you know, trying to make small talk. You know what it's like, these sort of cocktail parties where you don't know what to say to anyone, you know. And then they send for David. David comes, he has to get washed, he has to get ready. And as he comes in, God says, this is him. Anoint him, for this is the one that will rule my people Israel. And it says, Samuel took the horn of oil, poured it over him, and the Spirit of God came upon him from that hour. Well, that's a story from the Word of God. Let's just read some of that story from the Bible. It's 1 Samuel chapter 16. One Samuel chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, let's make yourselves holy, and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look on the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. 
Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Oh, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent him and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Well, we've had a story from the Word of God. We've read the story together. Now, we want to, almost like a discussion, except it's probably only me speaking unless someone's burning with a question, we're going to look at some of the lessons that this story teaches us. Okay. And the first thing is about anointing. It says... David was anointed and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him from that hour. Now, what's anointing? What does it mean? Today, in the church, particularly in the charismatic church, which we're part of, people talk a lot about anointing. They say, seek the anointing. Or, there was amazing anointing. Or, now I'm sure this doesn't happen here, but some places I go to, people almost put me on a pedestal. Now that won't happen with you lot, I know that. And they say, well, if I sit where he sat, I'll get the anointing. Or something like that. And so, the word is used a tremendous amount. What was it? What is anointing? Well, in its original meaning, it meant simply to pour oil on somebody's head as a symbol of their authority and the Holy Spirit coming upon them to give them that authority. That's originally what it meant. Leaders in Israel, prophets, priests and kings, were anointed. Oil was poured on their head. The Spirit of the Lord came upon them and they were, had authority to lead God's people. So that's what the word meant. What does it mean for us though? Why do people keep talking about anointing? Well, it teaches quite a number of things. Firstly, When you say Jesus Christ, you are talking about the anointing. The word Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah, which means anointed one. The whole of the Old Testament was looking forward to someone coming. And as the New Testament, as the Old Testament progressed, it became clearer that the one they were looking to come was an anointed one, a Messiah. 
You know, we, we remember that this, at Christmas, the Messiah came into the world. What does that mean? It means God's anointed one. The one into whom God is going to entrust the accomplishment of all his purposes by the one he's chosen. He was the one who was going to fulfill all the promises of God. Jesus, the Messiah. Again, because we, you, we almost use Jesus Christ as if Christ was his surname. Yeah? That's how it's come, because we've become so familiar in Western Christianity with it. We may say he's the Messiah, probably only at Christmas or where we're, when we're thinking in terms of the Jews. But Jesus Christ, or the Messiah that the Jews believed in, or Isa Masih, who the Muslims see as a holy prophet, all those words mean the anointed one here to accomplish the purposes of God. That's what it means. So anointing is very important because it refers to Jesus. But anointing also teaches us this, that God chooses leadership. Okay? Now the Bible says this, anybody who desires to be a leader or an elder desires a good thing. It's good to desire that good to desire to serve God more. That was particularly important to say to a persecuted church, as it was. Anyone who desires to be even more persecuted than the rest of the people is desiring a good thing. Trouble is, in the Western Christianity, we don't think that, okay, when, if the secret police came to this door, they would first take the elders. We don't think that way. Some parts of the world we do. When I'm in Pakistan, our leader there, he gets blamed if anything happens in his region within the so-called Christian community, many of whom aren't even born again, don't go to his church, but he sometimes has to flee for his life because something has happened in the so-called Christian community that has caused offence to the Muslims. Several times he's had to do that. He will get a phone call. And he say, we know where your children are, we can take them any time we like. That's tough, being a Christian leader in that context. We... I was thinking of that when, that when the lady shared about, sister shared about uh, freedom to worship. First time this summer, a camp I was leading was closed down by the secret police. Okay. But it's good to desire leadership as long as you remember the context of which that scripture was already originally said. But... God chooses leadership. Here, David was anointed by God. God chose him. God had looked at him and said, I want you to be the one who leads my people. 
looking forward to the one who will lead my people in years to come, who will be the anointed one. And so God chooses leadership. David was actually anointed twice. He was anointed here because God chose him, and he was anointed later because the um, people recognised the leadership and came and anointed him. This was many, many years later. And so he was anointed twice. Recognition by the people. And for Christian leadership, that's what's needed. God anoints and the people recognise. But, more than that, this is something else that's wonderful about Christianity, about the New Covenant, the New Testament. The Bible says this, that not only is Christ the Anointed One, but when you came to believe in Jesus... You were taken out of Adam, previously that's what you were, and you were placed in Christ. And in Christ, anointing by the Holy Spirit is your inheritance. Now, there is Christ the Anointed One and the church, God's people, God's anointed people. That's why we have to be very respectful about the church. Because not only do we see leaders as anointed to lead, but the whole church is God's anointed people as they've been baptized. And when you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in power, you have been anointed. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit? One or two people in this church? Okay, we're just okay. They're all very quiet, aren't they, John? Yeah. Okay, but you know, I'm 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 used to I'm not used to ministering in the south of England. Do you understand that? You know, I feel a bit insecure, really, ministering in the south of England, because you know, you have to be much more polite and all that sort of thing. I, I'm used to ministering in places when they'll shout back at you. You know, it's much more fun. All right, get the idea. Okay, <laughs> so. Forgive me, it's a new cultural experience for me, okay, uh, which I don't encounter very often, coming and ministering in the south of England. It's strange. <laughs> okay. And, what was I talking about? <laughs> but the church is anointed, that's right. Yeah, so, when you are, Baptised in the Holy Spirit, you enter into the inheritance of anointing which is yours in Christ. Peter said, when the, when the Holy Spirit first came on the day of Pentecost, this promise is for you and your children for all whom God will call. What promise? The promise of the power of the Holy Spirit coming on people. The promise of the anointing. Jesus is the anointed Messiah. We are the Messiah's anointed people in Christ. That's who we are. And so, anointing, if you've been baptised in the Holy Spirit, anointing isn't primarily something you are seeking. Anointing is something that you need to move in because God has anointed you. And we get 
terribly mystical about it. I was at a conference fairly recently and at the end of the first meeting, and this was great, the preacher had preached very powerfully and then he called people forward to experience the anointing of God. And then the next meeting, the worship leader, he started the next meeting and he said, come on, the anointing of God's here, come and receive it. I said, oh, I thought we'd receive that this morning. You know, but actually it was being said in a rather strange way. What they meant was the manifest presence of God. But the anointing of God comes upon us when we're baptised in the Holy Spirit. Now he then continues to give us more gifts, more power. He gives, uh, he gives other things to us. But we are God's anointed people and we need to move in the liberty and the freedom and the authority of God's anointed people. You understand? We are anointed. When Jesus read that passage in Isaiah uh, in the synagogue in Nazareth, he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me. And sometimes, well often, we need to know we are the anointed people of God and take initiatives which the Spirit will own because when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in anointing, just like David here, it says that the Holy Spirit came upon him from that time onwards. You understand? Hello? You understand? So, let me give an illustration of this. I was speaking at a conference, which I tend to do a lot of speaking. It's one of the drawbacks of my sort of job, you know. You're always at conferences. Scylla finds, if she travels with me, you know, it's always sitting in meetings. You know, it's not, it's not such fun, really. But, <laughs> of course, for the people I go to, it may be their only conference this year. So, I, you know, so uh, anyway, we were at our uh, pastors and wives conference in the Russian-speaking world. We now have 80 or 90 Russian-speaking churches in the New Frontiers family. And uh, we gather there them for a conference, which we do every two years. And now, I was speaking at that conference, but I was also overall responsible for the conference. And when you're responsible for something, this is just letting you into a leadership secret. John's a bit like this as well. When you're responsible for something, you can quite get quite agitated if it's not going right. Have you, you know, that's what leaders do. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you a few secrets. Okay, and I was responsible for this, and this was a conference which really being responsible for was quite difficult because a week before, we, we had over 300 people travelling, some of them coming three days on the train. Do you ever go three days on the train to a conference? All right. Three days by train. So they're all travelling in. And a week before the conference was due to take place, we didn't have a venue. All right. Now, to me, that was a bit difficult. To my Ukrainian friend who, because... He came up to me and he said, David, have we ever not had a conference? Don't worry. Okay, <laughs> haven't got a venue, but it's a week to go. We've got plenty of time to sort it out. You know, we had all these people coming, they're going to find places for them to sleep. 
and there were lots of other administrative things within the conference and then just before I was due to speak, the session before I was meeting with some church leaders over a situation in one church that had gone terribly, terribly badly wrong and they were terribly depressed about it and everything they said made the situation worse and I thought, oh dear, I suddenly realised I'm preaching in half an hour, well, an hour, I said, and I must get a little bit of preparation done. So I went up to my room. Not, you see, people think anointing is a tingly feeling. I didn't have a tingly feeling. I was cross, frustrated, and so I looked at my notes and I thought, oh, I can't preach that. That's hopeless. That's just not what this conference needs. So I think I have to think of something else to preach about or adapt the notes, which is what I did. And I said, oh, this is hopeless. And there were various other things that were supposed to be happening that afternoon that weren't happening and I was getting all frustrated. Because that's what happens to me. That's what I do. That's my weakness. And then God said to me, and... I want to do lots of healing of the sick at the end of your talk. I said to the Lord, I remember saying this, Lord, I don't feel anointed even to preach, let alone pray for the sick. Then I remembered the truth about anointing, which is God has anointed me. And what I have to do is fan into flame the gift that is within me. You understand? God has anointed me. God has given me a gift to preach the word. Well, you, you can judge that. But to preach the word and to pray for the sick. Therefore, I fan into flame or I stir up the gift that was in me because I have been anointed to do it. So I got up to preach and it went quite well. Then we, got, we prayed for the sick and people, even on my last trip to Russia, people were coming up to me and saying, I was healed on that occasion. Another lady, uh, she hadn't been in the meeting. She'd been looking after her children. She came at the end of the meeting and um, just came to the door of them where the meeting was. She didn't know we were praying for the sick. She didn't know what we preached about. She didn't know anything. She just came to meet her husband. And she'd been in terrible pain in her back for months. As she stood in that entrance, she felt the heat go right down her body and she was totally healed, even though she didn't know what was going on. Why? Oh, it's the anointing, yeah. But what was it? You stir up the gift that was within you. Have you been baptised in the Holy Spirit? Then stir up the gift that is within you. Don't keep saying, I'm waiting for the feeling of anointing. No, stir up the gift that was within you. That's what I want to say to you here in Winchester. For those new initiatives, ah, it does fit into the preaching after all. For those new initiatives that I was talking about. For this increased momentum. Stir up the gifts. God has used some of you evangelistically in the past but it's got very rusty and you, it hasn't, and you haven't been used in it recently. I'm going to pray for people like that at the end. Okay? God 
has used you in the past, but it's gone a little bit rusty, evangelistic. You had a zeal for evangelism in the past, but it's stir up the gift, fan it into flame. You have been anointed. Understand? That's what the that's what it's for. Okay. So that's the first thing I could say lots more about anointing, but I won't. Let's. What else do we learn from this story? Well, second thing we learn is this. God doesn't look on outward appearances. Aren't you glad of that? I'm glad. God doesn't look on outward appearances, but looks on the heart. And that applies whether you're old or young. David here was very young. Now, in many cultures, now, this doesn't apply to ours, but I'm trying to get the force of this into your mind. In many cultures, if you're young, your opinion doesn't really count. If you're the youngest in your family, how many of you are the youngest in your family? (laughs) Okay. If you were the youngest in your family, particularly very big families, as in this culture they would have, your opinion doesn't count for much. You're there to clean everyone's shoes. Okay, youngest? You're there to clean everyone's shoes, to wash up and clear up after the rest of them, to go and look after a few sheep. That's what you're there for. Again, when I'm speaking in some place, they can relate to this very, very well. The youngest doesn't really get any recognition. In fact, in some parts of West Africa, if I was to meet someone, you know, can I meet you? All right. Okay, so if I was to meet you, now, all the time in my conversation, I will be trying to find out whether he's older or younger than me. (laughs) All right. Like, do you remember the Cuban Missile Crisis? No. Oh, I'm all right now. Okay. That means I'm older and I don't have to take any notice of anything he says. All right. We can have this conversation. I have established that I'm older. He therefore has to be extremely respectful. Listen to what I say. And I don't have to take much notice of him at all. All right. That's... Now... Because, and that is the context of this scripture. There it was a question of age. And it's still so, as I say, in parts of Africa, in the Middle East, there's an Arab proverb which says this. Now, if you're taking notes and you write down this quote, don't serve it up in a few months. David Devonish said, this is not right, okay? But it's an Arab proverb which says this. He who is older by one day is wiser by one year. All right. (laughs) He who is older by one day is wiser by one year. Because that's the context. And so when, when they said, oh, there is the youngest, that is the sort of context, culturally, that that would be understood. However, now, in, in, 
largely in Britain, I think, but that's maybe because I'm old, that doesn't apply. In fact, sometimes it's a bit the reverse. You know, there's a bit of a cult of youth and people want to keep looking young and all that sort of stuff. But there are many other things. Social background. Education. Whether you, what school you went to. Hardly dare say this in Winchester. When I used to work in the city of London, we used to say, no, there's no such thing as corruption in England. We have the old school tie. Okay? And so social background and people can be almost discarded because they don't meet up to the general social expectation of what a leader should be. But the Bible says, don't, God doesn't look on the outward appearance. God doesn't look on your social background. God doesn't look, at, look on your history. God looks on your heart. Do you have a heart that's after God? That's what God looks at. And that's what we're to look at. That's what is being taught here. Don't look down. David was rejected by his family, but God chooses people like that. Indeed, the Bible says this, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. God chooses the foolish things of this world. Aren't you glad of that? Hello? I am. It's my, when people ask for my ordination certificate, which I haven't got, but some countries like that, I say this scripture. God chooses the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And God looks on the heart. I'm so pleased about that. And it means that we rely on God. Now, there's lots of things. We want to get methods good. We want to get our presentation good. We want to have a, an excellent presentation in a, in a public meeting like this. Of course we do. Because there's no point in doing things badly. But, actually... It's not that that makes the effectiveness, it's the anointing and power of God. So let's do everything as excellently as we can, but recognise that God doesn't look on those things, God looks on the heart that is doing them. Let's do them excellently, please, don't mishear me at all. Because we have to be appropriate to our culture in whatever context. If that's in Central Asia, it means we're appropriately sitting, I'll be sitting on the floor to preach. Making sure I don't point my toes at you because that's the, if I put the bottom of my feet towards you, that's the most insulting thing I could possibly do. So can you imagine me preaching, sitting on the floor without being able to move my feet in case I point at someone? <laughs> All right. So it would be a culturally appropriate there to do that. It's culturally appropriate here 
to make sure if we're putting on a presentation like a Sunday morning, we do it as excellently as we can because we want to reach the people of this town who will expect things to be done well. But know that God looks on the heart and that's what he anoints. Okay, that's the second thing. Then the third thing we learn from this is God wants a new style totally of leadership. Remember, what was it that the people were asking for? A king, but not just a king, like the other nations around. Okay? God then reveals through his prophets, prophets the tendency of all human government, which is to control, dominate you, and take from you. That's the tendency of all worldly leadership. Now, if you think it's tough in that respect in this country, then actually in this country, we, praise God, have had the long-term effects of past revivals, which actually have made at least an understanding that governments are the servants of the people. In most places I go to, that's not the case. And so even rules, you know, like whether you put your seatbelt on or not, people don't put their seatbelts on because rules are only for the benefit of the ruler. That's why rulers pass rules. It's to benefit themselves and to keep everybody else under. That's the supposition. That's the underlying social understanding. Because, but human leadership takes. Human leadership is served. When Jesus came, you see, David, this story of the anointing of David was, and I hope you've got this message now, was looking forward to the time when Jesus came. David was like a shadow or a type of Jesus who was to come. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus was even more a man after God's own heart. David was the... God's choice of a king. Jesus, even more, is God's choice of a king. Hallelujah. So as soon as David is, as soon as Jesus is introduced in Matthew's Gospel, he says, here, this is the genealogy of Jesus. Do you like that chapter? Or do you skip over it? Do you read that bit at Christmas? Oh, no, we skip over that to the wise men or something. Uh, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham. What does that mean? He's the promised one to bless every nation of the world. Hallelujah. That's why we're involved in our world mission, because the son of Abraham has come to bless the nations of the world and the son of David. What does that mean? A man after God's own heart who will be totally different from all the rulers of the world in order to demonstrate God's grace and favour towards the people of the world. That's lovely, isn't it? 
That's who Jesus was. And he came to serve. He didn't come to be served. You know, in, I've worked in organisations even in Britain where the size of your room and the number of paintings on the wall denote your status. You know, I worked for a bank once and you had the staff dining room, then you had the manager's dining room, then you had the senior executive's dining room. You know? It's all status. And I was on the borderline between manager and senior executive. I was the highest grade of manager. And therefore, if I was entertaining guests, I didn't have to take them into the manager's dining room. I could go to the senior executive's dining room. Now, I think that's probably... I don't work at a bank anymore, so I don't know if it's still like that. But there's this sort of thing, this status thing that goes with leadership. It's probably now much more expressed in money than it is in status. But actually, Jesus says, I came to serve. I didn't come to, Son of Man didn't come to be served. Jesus wasn't there for everyone to look after, but he came to serve. And it says of this sort of, it was said prophetically of this anointed one, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers his, the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that are young. This is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Wow, that's the anointing of God upon Jesus going out to rule in the nations of the world. What's his rule like? He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Oh, what a saviour. That's what he's like. And that's what Christian leadership is like. Because it takes after him. So Christian leadership is like that as well. It doesn't break, it doesn't snuff out people. There's just a little bit of life there. Let's fan it into flame. Someone that's bruised, almost breaking, a reed that's almost breaking, let's make sure we hold it up. This is the grace of God demonstrated in a different style of leadership. Alright? So, that's what we learn. Okay. Now there you are. You've had a story from the Word of God. Some of you will have learned everything from the story. We've had a reading of the story from the Word of God and then three lessons. Anointing, all right. Then, what's anointing? It's what God does as he baptizes in the Holy Spirit, he pours out his power. Yes, we seek for more power and more power, but we know God has given us a gift and we'll stir it up and go for it. Okay. We also learn that... God doesn't look on the outside. God doesn't judge as people judge. Whatever cultural standards there are for judging people, whether it's in Arab countries where it's age, or 
south of England where it's status, God doesn't judge that way. And thirdly, a different sort of king, a different sort of leadership. That's what God has come to bring, a person after his own heart.